This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Pacific Review from ABC Radio Australia. I'm Evan Wasuka. Coming up, concerns over Australia's donation of assault rifles to Solomon Islands. The announcement was somewhat tone deaf. You know, in the Solomon Islands um, civil conflict, uh, arms and the use of arms was a major problem. Many people had, you know, guns pointed in their faces. Dozens are dead as one Papua New Guinea community looks for answers over a violent conflict. The situation is such that you can sort it out and it erupts again. So we really need police presence on uh, on the island. And an expedition to Vanuatu to find a rare but potent variant of kava. But first, Vanuatu has a new prime minister. Ishmael Kalsaka was voted in unopposed by members of parliament as Vanuatu's 13th prime minister. He was sworn into parliament on Friday alongside 51 other MPs. Jenny Ligo is the chair of the Women Against Crime and Corruption Advocacy Group and welcomed the new appointment. People of Vanuatu uh, have uh, voted through their representative to parliament and their representative in parliament, members of parliament, majority voted for him. And even uh, he was... Uh, 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 he was not, uh, nobody else stood up uh, against his uh, nomination. So that's a huge uh, blow for the Vanuatu Parliament. And uh, we, uh, we all uh, congratulate him for that. Among those sworn into office was Julia King, who's Vanuatu's first woman MP in more than a decade. Ms. King is a member of Mr. Kaltzikau's Union of Moderate Parties. A donation of assault rifles and police vehicles to Solomon Islands has been met with scrutiny. Over concerns, competition with China has pushed Canberra to rush the decision. The country's opposition has slammed the move as dangerous, while others have raised fears the firearms could end up in the wrong hands. But as Priyanka Srinivasan reports, Australia is defending the decision. The 60 MK-18 rifles, along with 13 new police vehicles, were handed over to Solomon Islands Police at a ceremony in capital Honiara on Wednesday. Australia's federal police said the weapons would help maintain peace and stability in the country ahead of next year's Pacific Games and the 2024 election. Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare welcomed the gift. This uh, assistance will help strengthen our country to protect and serve our, our people and ensuring security, peace and uh, stability in the country. Therefore, I wish to stress at, on the outset my deepest, deepest appreciation to the government and people of Australia for your continued support. But others in the country weren't so enthusiastic. Its opposition leader, Matthew Wale, labelled the gift of guns as disturbing, saying Australia was driven by anxiety over China's growing police cooperation with Solomon Islands. China has donated replica guns and riot gear to the country's police force in recent months. And just days after Australia's announcement, China made its own weapons donation, gifting Solomon Islands police with water cannon trucks. But Australia's Minister for the Pacific, Pat Conroy, defended the rifle donation, saying it was part of a long-standing commitment to the Pacific nation and not driven by rivalry with Beijing. I think if you saw the, the unrest last year in the Solomon Islands, it's important that the Royal Solomon Islands Police Force uh, 
has the equipment and the capability uh, that is needed. Last November, violent protests gripped Honiara, targeting parliament, Chinese businesses and other buildings. The city went into lockdown and Australia sent a police contingent to calm the situation. Mr Conroy says the delivery of Australian guns and vehicles will help promote security in the region. We're proud of our role uh, supporting a, a secure and stable Pacific, including in the Solomon Islands. And these announcements are part of that. Uh, our, our commitment to the Pacific goes back decades. It's not about what other countries might be doing in the last couple of years. The arming of police remains a deeply sensitive topic in Solomon Islands since the country's civil conflict in the early 2000s. During that time, militia raided the police and used their weapons on local communities. A 2003 Australian-led regional assistance mission helped return stability and thousands of weapons were destroyed as part of a gun amnesty. The AFP only began gradually rearming the police in 2013. This context has led some to criticise Australia's latest donation. The announcement was somewhat tone deaf. Dr Anouk Ride is a Solomon Islands researcher affiliated with the Initiative for Peacebuilding at the University of Melbourne. You know, in the Solomon Islands um, civil conflict, uh, arms and the use of arms was a major problem. Many people had, you know, guns pointed in their faces. They were threatened with arms. Um, and, of course, um, a few hundred people lost their lives. So when you have, you know, all of a sudden images of the Solomon Islands police giving arms without any real context as to why and how these arms are going to be used, um, it creates uh, fear and, and mistrust. She says people in Solomon Islands are worried the guns may be used against them or fall into the wrong hands. This is the fear. You know, will these weapons actually be used um, in a context of, you know, just a crowd of people and people are sh- innocent people are shot um, for no reason? And then the second problem is uh, the storage of the arms and whether the police force can be trusted to um, you know, store and, and keep these arms out of the hands of others. A contingent of Solomon Islands police officers were trained with the semi-automatic rifles in Brisbane earlier this year. Pacific Minister Conroy says Australia will continue to build capacity of Solomon Islands police. That training element is very strong and that training element is there to give uh, support. That was Australia's Pacific Minister Pat Conroy ending that report from Priyanka Srinivasan. A violent massacre on the Papua New Guinea island has left one community searching for answers. Investigations are ongoing into the fighting on Kirawina Island, which started over a disagreement on a soccer pitch, but ended with dozens dead. Mackenzie Smith with more. It started innocently enough, a friendly soccer match between two villages on Kirawina Island early last month. But when a fight broke out between the teams, two spectators were killed trying to stop it. Police were sent to the island from nearby Alatau, but soon left since locals weren't cooperating. And then, as the local MP Douglas Tumoresa explains, the situation exploded. Everything cooled off until uh, last Sunday. Last Sunday, as you know, a lot of uh, Papua New Guineans and uh, Kirwina people go for church service on Sundays. And so whilst they were out at the church, some bugger, we don't know who it was, went to the gardens and destroyed all the food gardens. And I'm not talking about one or two gardens being destroyed. We're talking about all food gardens. They uprooted the crops. It's suspected the gardens were destroyed in retaliation to the soccer violence. At the heart of the conflict are long-standing tensions between the Kulumata people who live on the coast of Kiriwena 
and the Kuboma people who live inland. After the Kulumata people found their gardens destroyed on Monday morning, a large battle broke out between the two groups. A local man tried to contact Douglas Tumuresa for help, but it was too late. The people were adamant that they should get into a walk, that they, they won't listen to anybody. And... Uh, Seeing that and hearing that, he contacted me and we tried to get police to go over, but it erupted before we could do anything. According to initial police reports, the fight lasted three hours and involved bush knives, machetes, stick spears and possibly firearms. The fighting was over by the time police arrived, leaving the provincial police commander for Milne Bay, Peter Barkey, to pick up the pieces. Police will remain there until all our requirements are completed, which means we have to investigate all the injuries and death that has occurred as a result of that fight. So we will be there for a while. But while investigations are ongoing, police say the fighting could have been prevented. Exactly how is up for debate. The local MP, Douglas Tumurisa, says he's been requesting extra police on Kiriwina for 10 years, warning a conflict could break out. So in my time as the member for Kiriwina Brunaf, I've seen several of these fights where one or two people have died and we get police to come in and sort it out or some of us leaders get in there and, you know, mediate uh, the peace in the villages. But uh, the situation is such that you can sort it out and it erupts again. So we really need police presence on uh, on the island. But the district police commander, Peter Barkey, says there's a shortage of police across PNG and a lack of housing for any additional officers on Kiriwina. Commander Barkey says the conflict isn't a law and order issue. He's placing the blame with local leaders on Kiriwina. If those systems are functioning, then the society will function as normal. So the decision to go to war... In Kiribina, the decision to go to war is not made by individuals. It's made by their leaders. So it's, there is very strong tribalistic mentality there. When the leaders say, let's go to war, they go to war. When they say, we stop, we stop. That's why I'm saying it's a leadership issue. Miranda Forsyth is an associate professor in the College of Asia and Pacific at the Australian National University. She says police and communities need to work more collaboratively in PNG. Neither the local level nor the state level has capacity to deal with these issues by themselves. There is absolutely a requirement for both of them to be working together. And that kind of um, buck passing is, is really unhelpful. So both need to do better in terms of creating these kind of linkages. She says the violence in Kiriwina underscores an unresolved feedback loop of violence in PNG, where a single incident can spark large conflicts. Some of the the traditional ways of um, of intervention, some of the um, you know the the peacekeepers in communities who had great ability to use oratory no longer have the same power that they that they previously had, um, and of course urbanisation means that communities are more scattered as well, um, and so that that opportunity for leaders to to really have that kind of control is less. Miranda Forsyth says she's worried that without systemic change in PNG, tribal conflicts will continue to escalate. A police mobile squad in Kiriwina is on standby in case fighting breaks out again. Mackenzie Smith with that report. Concern is mounting over the separation of powers in Kiribati 
after the Attorney General was appointed as the country's acting Chief Justice. It's the latest twist in the saga that has seen five judges suspended and tensions between the government and the judiciary have increased. But as Marion Farr reports, the latest development has lawyers and anti-corruption groups extremely worried. After months without a functioning judiciary, Kiribati finally has a new top judge. Tessiro Semilota has been appointed as acting Chief Justice and she's expected to formally take up the role today. She's the first female and the first citizen of Kiribati to hold the prestigious position. But at least until a few days ago, she was also the Attorney General. That is raising major concerns. It's obviously a fluid situation, but it's deeply disturbing. Australian Bar Association President Dr Matthew Collins KC says the move is completely at odds with judicial independence, which is mandated in Kiribati's constitution. It undermines the separation of powers where an Attorney-General, who is a member both of the Parliament and of the Executive, is appointed a member of the judiciary. And he says that's crucial to the wider region. Look, it's really important for the stability of our region that um, the small island nations of the Pacific are flourishing democracies. It's not clear whether Justice Semilotha has officially resigned from her position as Attorney General. The Kiribati government has not responded to the ABC's request for comment. In a social media statement, President Tanesi Mamau said he was proud to appoint Justice Semilotha to the role on Friday, adding that the government would respect the powers of the judiciary. The move comes after the government controversially suspended five senior judges, including Justice David Lamborn, an Australian national. That effectively left Kiribati without a functioning judiciary, something Kiribati Law Society President Birimaka Tekanene believes the government is genuinely trying to address. It's a starting point, and I think this is a move that the government is now taking to fill in the vacancy within the judiciary. He's confident Justice Semilota will be up to the job. I have no doubt that after taking an oath to office, she will be committed, she will defend the independence of the judiciary and uphold the rule of law. But many others are not convinced, including Transparency International Australia CEO Clancy Moore. This latest move is seemingly at odds with the notion of separation of powers and unfortunately weakens democracy and transparency for the people of Kiribati. He says the new Chief Justice will face a conflict of interest in presiding over a large backlog of criminal cases she approved as Attorney General. There's real risks, I guess, in the functionings of the court and also how policy is made as well. Mr Moore believes it points to a growing trend in some parts of the Pacific. Increased uh, authoritarianism, attacks on free media and civil society and a, a real increase in the risk of corruption, both government and business corruption. As Kiribati's main development partner, Mr Moore wants Australia to play an active role in addressing the issues. Marion Farr reporting. A statement from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade says that Australia has a strong commitment to the rule of law and democratic values and that it has encouraged the resolution of the current issues as part of its ongoing engagement with the government of Kiribati. Pacific Islanders hoping to migrate to Australia are pinning their hopes on a new visa designed to make it easier to settle and work here. The Pacific Engagement Visa will be modelled on a similar arrangement established in New Zealand 
and could open up the way for as many as 3,000 islanders to live in Australia permanently. As Dubravka Volodya reports, many are worried the path towards permanent migration could still be a lengthy one. Tim, who does not want to use his real name, came here from PNG early last year on an employer-nominated visa, after working remotely for about a year. It's a lot of paperwork, lots and lots of paperwork, lots of documentation. He was sponsored by his work to apply for permanent residency, but his application was refused. That was the reason why my application was refused because I didn't provide English language competency. The law requires that everybody submits an IELTS test. I thought that my uh, qualifications to very high levels educationally would suffice, uh, but I was told that I needed to do those tests. He set the English test and appealed the decision. It's been more than a year and he's still waiting. If the appeal is uh, refused, then exit Australia, I think, in, in a month, 20 days or so, and then go through the proceedings again, complete all the documentation, all the paperwork, pay the money that's required. You, you have to pay your visa application, and you have to do all the health tests, the police checks, and then you have to wait again to see how long that takes. He can't travel for work and could not attend the funerals of close family members in PNG. He says being in limbo is hard. You don't want to think about it because um, it just depresses you. The counsellor that I sought the help from said to focus on uh, on your work and focus on trying to make sure that the situation is addressed. And when you think about it again, you know, it, it just takes you down. But I don't want that to happen. I want to be able to do my work well. But it's really, really hard. Tim is not the only Pacific Islander struggling to settle permanently in Australia. But a new visa could change things, paving the way for 3,000 Pacific Islanders to settle here permanently every year, starting in July next year. Labour flagged the visa in its election campaign. Funding for it was in the government's budget last week. You do also see in the budget the confirmation of the 3,000 visas under the new Pacific Engagement Visa. Professor Stephen House is with the Australian National University. The advantage of labour mobility is that the benefits go straight to household rather than having to go through two sets of government. The new visa will be drawn through a ballot, meaning everyone can apply, both in the Pacific region and those already here. Applicants will have to speak some English and have to have a job offer in Australia. A Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade spokesperson says details are still being worked out. Consultations are underway with Pacific countries and Timor-Leste to inform the design of the visa and gauge their interest in participating. Country allocations have not yet been determined and will be informed by consultations. It says applications for the ballot will open from July next year. So far, Pacific Islanders could come to live in Australia on certain skilled worker visas, the labour mobility schemes, or as New Zealand citizens. Labour mobility expert Dr Rochelle Bailey says the new visa is a positive initiative that will grow the diaspora. But she says there are a number of potential pitfalls. My main concern has been 
what support systems will be in place when the Pacific Engagement Visa um, arrives mid next year. The new visa has been modelled after New Zealand's Pacific Access Category visa that was launched a couple of decades ago. And Dr Bailey says this country can learn from its neighbours' experience. There are real concerns between when people arrive and when they get their permanent residency. So it takes up to two years to obtain your permanent residency on the Pacific Access category. And during that time, often people are left in a state of vulnerability in terms of access to social services. She says Australia should use the support network set up for seasonal workers to look after the new arrivals. This is a missing link. If we could have something, a seminars for people before they come to Australia to live, you know, use the Pacific Engagement Visa, that there is some kind of education around you know, what their rights are, what the expectations will be, services will be available to them. Tim hopes he will have his residency issues settled by mid-next year. But if not, he's willing to go down that path too and apply for the new visa. Because I've already applied for a one, one system. It's probably doing, so I prefer to stick to one area and if I fail there, then I probably might want to launch it under this new 3,000 he hopes applicants will not have to sit the English language test to access the visa. Debravka Volodir reporting. And finally, how far would you go for a bowl of good kava? Well, a team from a Canadian company chartered a small plane to fly to a remote island to find a rare type of kava in Vanuatu. John McGowan is the Chief Science Officer for Forney Enterprises and he led the expedition. We've been on a mission all around Vanuatu trying to collect every single cultivar of kava that exists here and we collected 299 unique specimens and uh, and there may be a couple of overlaps because there are some names that uh, may be shared between islands and some different plants that are actually the same. But we analyze them in the lab, and from time to time we find a particularly nice-looking sample. So this sample of puriki that we collected a few years ago, it looked good in the lab. We sent off a couple of samples to our friends and some some of our, our favorite customers, and they sampled it. They told us it was wonderful. And then we had the global pandemic. We weren't allowed to travel in Vanuatu from island to island, but eventually the doors opened back up. We reanalyzed the data. Um, sparkly eyes when we saw the chemical composition of this particular plant. And um, luckily we had a guy uh, working for us called Joseph Lau. He's an indigenous chief and he's got really good connections. And he was able to track down a guy who knew a guy who could uh, help us find this poor Ricky. And so, yeah, we took a little plane over there and um, and picked it up. It was it was really fun. And very interested that you chartered a, a plane to get there. I mean, what did the indigenous landowners, I know there's a lot of, I guess, um, you know, people take a lot of pride in their kava plantations and, and what they're growing. Were they happy to see you there taking their, their roots to, to sail, sell on? Yeah, they were delighted to see us. It wasn't like we were there to pinch their stuff and run away. <laughs> it, it was No, they were really, really happy that we were there. What happens there, in, in Tongo, as you know, they don't have a great deal of infrastructure. They mm-hmm. don't have a great deal of business. And almost everybody there, they're, they're living on subsistence farming. So for us to be able to come in and buy a plane load of kava for them, it's a, it's a real economic score. They've got a, they, they have the opposite of monoculture there for crops. They're growing everything. They're trying to sell what they can but pretty hard to 
to sell melons or, or whatever else when you're in the middle of nowhere. There's no real regular transportation to, to get it off the island. Um, kava, a little bit difficult to ship by sea because you need to have it fresh. You gotta, you gotta pack it fresh. Uh, so the plane was the way to go. They were really happy to see their, their kava marketed in the US and in, um, in Australia and New Zealand. And I think that they were really excited too about the possibility that we could come back and get some more. And I think that's, that's certainly on the cards as well because people love it. It's really good. John McGowan, kava researcher with Forney Enterprises, speaking there to the ABC's Priyanka Srinivasan. And that's it from Pacific Review. I'm Evan Wasuka. Thank you for listening. And do join us again at the same time next week for more news and views from around the region.